This is Imperial Voice, streaming from the palace of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. City. I'm Tosi Onilere. I'm William Heath. Our guest today is one of the UK's leading academic experts on Ethiopia, Professor Chris Kramer, Professor of Political Economy of Development at School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS. Professor Chris Kramer, welcome to Imperial Voice. Hi, thank you. Th- thanks very much for having me on the, on the show. Well, Chris, how are you and how's SOAS? We've been a bit worried. <laughs> uh, I'm fine. I'm as fine as anybody is in un- under lockdown conditions. Uh, getting a bit bit bored with that. Um, adapting to to these weird things about remote teaching and stuff, and doing everything through a laptop. So so sort of delivering lectures while staring at a green dot on one's laptop is not ideal. But 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 we've adapted, and and so as overall, um, you know, anybody who knows anything about so as and reads the papers knows that we've had a rather tough time um, in in the last year or two and that was really building up before uh, covid hit us all but 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 the pandemic has definitely made things even more difficult so we've had a very very rough ride but i think we are emerging from that um, and we're we're a sort of we're having a kind of reset, I suppose we've pressed, and I'm I'm really hoping, and I'm relatively confident actually that that we're going to, in that slightly ghastly, cliched way, build back and build back better. Very good luck with that. We don't hear what you're saying about doing everything re- remotely. Tozin and I are finding making radio shows remotely works pretty well actually. You don't have to go into the studio. Um, uh, you press record on Zoom. So so that part we've adjusted to. We're really glad to hear that SOAS is, is sort of getting back onto a, a, a solid footing because it's such a sort of precious institution, I think, in the... Um, yes, it is. I was at SOAS about 25 years ago, just to do my master's. Yes, yes. What did you study? I did um, um, Area Studies Africa uh, with uh, uh, Richard Jeffries. Do you remember him? Yes, very much so. Yeah. Yes. And Duncan, oh, Professor Duncan, uh, he had... Um, uh, multiple multiple sclerosis. Oh. I, he was amazing. I know was, what you mean. Yes. Yes, and he yeah. he yes he had printed lots of lots of books and you know West Africa and West African economics and stuff. So yeah, it was it was a really 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 amazingly wonderful time. It was probably one of the most precious 
um, periods of education in my life, I found words for um, thoughts that I had. Mm. And uh, yes, oddly <laughs> enough, <laughs> yeah, go on, please. Yes. No, no, just, I mean, it's lovely to hear that. And it's, and it, and it's great when one meets people who've had that experience, because it is, it's, it's this small jewel, really, of a of, of very, very vibrant feeling. And it, it, you know, it has a buzz, which I've always really, really loved. It's different from anywhere. It is. I, I felt very empowered and very, very lucky to have been able to go there. That's great. That's really I'd like great. to see it on a super strong footing because uh, I mean, you may feel that Thoas had a sort of wobbly moment, but I cannot tell you how unstable Fairfield House is in Bath, the, uh, the legacy of, uh, of Haile Selassie to our community, which obviously is what prompt, prompts our conversation. I mean, we, sure. we are a, a total startup out of the chaos and out of the void. So when we look at somewhere like SOAS, we just can't believe how, how sort of grand and huge and well <laughs> Yeah, they're small and they're small, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So listen, I mean, obviously, um, Haile Selassie's legacy is the start point for what we're doing. And I do wonder, I mean, you know, you're an Ethiopian expert, principally an economist, but what is your impression of, of Haile Selassie and, and of him in history and, and of, of, of the legacy that he has for the world today? It's, it, it's a very, very difficult question for me to answer because I think that Haile Selassie comes to somebody like me or to, to many of us now through, through sort of very different angles in a, in a way, really. I think there's a strong sense of something about Haile Selassie that, um, that endures uh, globally, which is a sense of Ethiopia uh, punching above its weight in a way, his internationally. So in in the same way that he um, was in a way, but you know, an international statesman, not just an Ethiopian statesperson. Uh, so so later was Melas Zanawi, what everyone thinks of Melas. He he played an extraordinary role on the on the global stage, and I think that that legacy is quite important. And you you the most obvious way in which you see that nowadays is in the creation of, um, of Ethiopian air airlines, you know, which is, I think, one of the big African business. So much that, that, that connects the continent and it isn't just Ethiopian airlines as a hub, but it's, it's the diplomatic organizations, it's the African Union building, all of these things based in Addis. So much happens through Addis. Um, and, and that has a lot to do, obviously, with, with the, the history of, of Haile Selassie, um, you know, organising around those things. And, and that endures and it's terribly important. But I think more broadly internationally, and the, the example I always give people, mainly because I, um, my, my partner is from South Korea, and, 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 and when we're, we're in, um, in Seoul, you have this sense that, that people have a, an enduring sense of Ethiopia. They, they, they remember Ethiopia's commitment to the international forces in the, in the, uh, in the Korean War. And, and that again, I think, was Haile Selassie's doing. And, and it, you know, those things don't, don't really go away. They, they, they leave an imprint in people's minds. So this really intrigues me. We've got a sense of Ethiopia globally. Uh, so a, 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 a state or a, a, a nation or a country which has this strong, consistent impression on the global stage. And that comes from His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie. But 
but the figure at the centre of it is a complete enigma. I mean, we, you know, we, we've both read Richard Kapuscinski's book, The Emperor, and, and you've described it as as much sort of poetry as fact. It's obviously um, detested by the Rastafari who, who, who feel that they're writing about their messiah. There's also, I don't know, e Evelyn Waugh's description of the coronation. It do, we haven't really yet got to any sort of agreed, universal, mature understanding of who Haile Selassie was, and we probably never will, will we? Um, I, I suspect we, we may not. It, 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 it's curious, actually. I mean, there, there, there are good historians in Ethiopia and of Ethiopia, and you, you, you can see, I think this is somebody of enormous historical significance, whether you think that was largely positive, negative, or you, you don't think either way. He just is a very historically significant figure. I think another way in, in which that's the case is, you know, you mentioned earlier the Ethiopian um, handbook on the Ethiopian economy that, that, that I co-edited. We have to put in a plug for that, Chris, don't we? We really do. Well, it was a great thing. It's the first, it, it's the first, I mean, this may not sound thrilling um, to people who are not economists like me, but it's the first single African country economics handbook that, that OUP have put out. And Oxford handbooks are, are quite prestigious things. And it was a massive um, un undertaking to do. So we're all very proud of that, the people who, who were involved. But I think the thing is, that if you, that book captured a particular moment. I mean, maybe we'll come back to that um, in a while. But if you look at the post-91, post-Derg history of Ethiopia and its economy, some of that ha has its origins uh, in Haile Selassie's time, in, in, in terms of a bit of a kind of commitment to particular sectors and activities and so on. So, so I think it's it's not just this broader Pan-African history um, and significance, but but a sort of state formation and a, and, and a modernizing approach that that uh, that were revived a little bit after. Well, in some ways, you could say the Derg were modernizing themselves. They just um, screwed it up rather royally. But it's interesting. We uh, we spoke um, a couple of weeks ago with um, Princess Esther. Uh, and Tahin, uh, who is very strongly um, an advocate of preserving the heritage of Ethiopia, and she, including the heritage of the Dirk. She thought it was a great shame to destroy history or, or, or buildings or artifacts, which spoke of that stage in Ethiopia's history, which I thought was remarkably generous of her, as she had to flee for her life from, from their regime. So I'm just going to finish on, on this question of the perception of Haile Selassie, because Clearly, the different views of him are going to be irreconcilable, aren't they? If some people feel he's a deity and other people see him in, in terms of sort of, uh, uh, you know, the lack of equality and the revolution that happened. But I mean, are we left then with words like sort of fascinating, statesmanlike, dignified, controversial? I mean, is that such a terrible thing? I mean, if you think about somebody like Churchill in, in, in this country, isn't it rather the same? Anybody who's who has quite a significant impact on the history of their country and beyond is, is going to do that. They're, they're, they're going to rile some people. They're going to kind of generate unending loyalty amongst others. If you think of Churchill, there are people in this country utterly devoted to him in ways that I can't quite understand. And there are people in India, for example, or maybe in Iraq, who, who think this was a, a completely terrible person responsible for many, many people's deaths. So you when people have that presence, that significance, 
you cannot expect a consensus on, on, on what they were and what their role was, I think, which is why we have to keep digging, keep thinking, keep, keep discussing and try and keep those discussions a little bit um, polite, I suppose. <laughs> that would be nice. Listen, let's listen to a first track and then Tosin's going to ask you about your core work on uh, economy and economics. Um, first track up, you've chosen Hailemergia, which is fantastic.
Tyler was going to come to Bath, you know. Is that right? Really? He was all booked in, but then this bloody COVID came down. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He's going to wow. do a couple of gigs here, including like a personal appearance at Fairfield House. Well, if we fix it up, will you be down to see well, it? Please let me know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Chris, um, thank you for that. It was really great to um, always we get introduced to new pieces of music. And that was definitely new to me. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, so back to you and your um, career. You're a professor of political economy at SOAS. Mm. What is political economy and how does it differ from traditional approaches right. to economy? Well, I, I mean, there, there, are, um, there are so many different definitions of what political economy is. For me, what it means, I suppose, is that you cannot separate out economic transactions market transactions, production, so on and so forth, from the context in which they take place. And that context is historical, it's institutional, it's social, it's political. So that's the simplest way of putting it. Whereas I think a lot of economics tries to pretend that you can. You abstract from that in order to have a a so-called scientific um, model and make predictions and stuff. And, and, And it just, for me, doesn't really cut it. Um, And in in other words, economics is a, and it's part of social science, rather than a standalone um, natural science, which it sometimes pretends to try to be. I think more, more edgily, what I would say is, for me, political economy is seeing that economies and economic behavior are um, shot through with power relations, with relationships of, that are largely relationships of, of inequality. And therefore we, we, we have to understand those distribution, distributional tussles. And, and so, so, so that's my approach to, to political economy, I think. Well, it seems as if the latter um, appears very sort of Eurocentric and, and maybe political economy is less so um, because it takes very much into consideration um, the realities of uh, what's happening in that local economy. No, I was just going to ask you, um, you mentioned uh, as a young person being introduced to Ethiopia, but how did you become an Ethiopian expert? Um, if, if that's what I am, and I'm not, I'm not sure <laughs> that I really am, but, but I'm just lucky enough really to, to have spent more and more time in recent years working in and on Ethiopia. I think, uh, so I, I used to work more, I lived and worked in Southern Africa, in Mozambique and South Africa, and I did some research on Angola too. And, and, and then you, you, you just get drawn into different things. And then I think around 1999 or so, so late 90s, I got asked to be part of a team that was, uh, I think, doing some commissioned research on Ethiopia and it was around a particular um, policy, the agricultural uh, development led industrialization strategy at the, at the time. And so we were working for the Ethiopian government doing this commissioned research. And that was the first time that I went there. And I was particularly uh, asked to and was interested in working on a number of Ethiopian exports. So I did some interviews in the textile sector. Um, I went to tanneries to look at the leather stuff. And I 
made my first trip outside Addis um, to uh, areas near Yegacheti, coffee growing areas, and that was extraordinarily interesting. So, so that was the first time I got involved, and then we started doing some teaching. We did some some training sessions in Debrezate, so not that far outside Addis, um, and although far enough that that it, it the the distance, the road between Addis Ababa and Debrezate has become for me one of the most extraordinary indicators of of modern change in Ethiopia, and I'll maybe come back to that. But we were teaching um, uh, government officials uh, economics, and that was really, really intriguing and gave one a lot of insights. And so, so we would go regularly, and I did that over a period of um, maybe three or four years. And, and, and then later on, I uh, got more involved when I led a research project on the the implications of fair trade certification for the poorest people involved in the production of um, coffee and flowers in Ethiopia and coffee and tea in Uganda. And that was a, what, a four year project or something. Uh, we did a lot of field work in different flower growing towns and coffee growing regions in, in Ethiopia. Chris, I'm interested, how did the fair trade uh, scheme measure up? Did you find that it was helping people on the ground? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It made so it helped some people, but it definitely helped some people. And here we come to inequality, distribution, political economy. Uh, it it what we found was that it made no positive difference okay. overall, on average, to the lives of the poorest people. That's wage workers in coffee. Mm. So, so to just tell a little story about that, the first time I went to Ethiopia, I, as I was saying, I, I was driven down to coffee growing areas um, in the south. And before we got to the uh, headquarters of the cooperative where I was being taken, I, I asked about the size distribution of farms amongst coffee cooperative members. In other words, you, you, you know, what range of, of sizes of farms do people have? And I was told, no, 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 no. Everybody in Ethiopia has one hectare. And this was the story that, that, that was believed widely internationally and it took about 10 minutes of research, not very clever research, to find out it was completely rubbish, not true at all. And because you have actually inequality in land holding sizes, you, you therefore have some people who, who have so little land that it's barely viable to live on and so they need to, to find other ways to survive which means selling their their labor and you have other people who are doing pretty well and they hire in labor it may be casual seasonal labor but they hire wage workers and those wage workers are the people who are really poor the people who depend on those um, seasonal casual jobs so we wanted to know what difference fair trade made to them and the answer is compared to people who were in some other areas where, which were also largely roughly smallholder farming areas, uh, but not with fair trade certification and compared to people working on larger farms. So say a hundred hectares near Jimma or something like that. Uh, they, the fair trade made no positive difference at all. Oh, it's, I mean, I'm sort of, for the idealists among us who sort of scrupulously try and buy fair trade product produce, that's disappointing to hear. But so I'm, I'm sitting here drinking um, Ethiopian coffee and there's there's half a case of Ethiopian sort of wine next door. The white wine's okay, actually, but I think the red 
it'd be fair to say it doesn't travel very well. So do, do you think that continues to be true about fair trade? That's, that's a brilliant question. I, I think, I think we, fair trade, as you can imagine, we're not entirely happy with um, our research findings, um, but we stand by them really. And, and, and it's a very, very complex and ongoing situation. There are definite beneficiaries, and there are beneficiaries within Ethiopia as there are everywhere. They tend to be the, the people who are a little bit better off in the cooperatives. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a question of, does it do what it says on the tin? Mm. And, and I think that despite the tussles that we had with fair trade, they and other certification bodies have actually taken these issues more seriously because it's become clear from other independent research that, that we really were you know onto something that was quite important about it so what they've tried to do is they've changed their standards to take more account of that so they basically had a set of standards for for coffee and some other commodities um, that were based on the presumption that there was no wage labor involved in coffee production because it's a smallholder crop. Right. Um, I mean, obviously not in Brazil, but in many countries it sort of is. And they've, they've had to recognize that, that, that it's much more complicated than that. So I think the debates and the institutional practices have been changing to some extent. Um, I, I would say we still, there's still a, an argument out there about how you make the best impact on the lives of the poorest people in those um, producing areas. I mean, in the contrast is with, for example, specialty coffee companies who emphasize quality above all else. Mm. And many of those would claim they make a bigger difference. So it's, I think there's still a lot more that we need to, to find out and to do. Yeah, we've got a specialty coffee provider locally, um, Eddie Twitchett at Roundhill Roastery. I'm, right. I'm drinking his Ethiopian coffee right now. And yeah, he, he wants to do the best by the growers and he finds fair trade is unhelpful. It's very interesting that. Yeah, yeah. Chris, do you think that agricultural commodities, I mean, is that the way forward for the Ethiopian economy? And which are the most promising ones? We've got, you know, coffee. I've got half a case of wine uh, sitting there next door. What I, I mean, I do. I, I don't think it's the only way forward but i think there is still huge scope for ethiopia to um derive enormous gains from agriculture and from agricultural exports okay. uh, if you think about coffee it's it's the single biggest you know export earner other than the airlines for ethiopia and it's it's very very important everybody in the world knows about ethiopian coffee if you think of things like illy really top-notch coffee producers they always need for their blends they need some ethiopian there's mm. something very very it has the biodiversity it's astonishing the quality the range etc and yet nobody knows to this day how much coffee is produced in ethiopia every how year we don't know the data aren't there we, they're not good enough and 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 the and the yields are low by comparison with Colombia or let alone Brazil or with Vietnam or so on and so forth. So this is the country's, you know, it's, an it's, it's, it's the goal. It's the incredibly important thing. Huge numbers of people produce it. Huge numbers of very poor people depend on working in coffee. And yet it's performing way, way below its potential. So there's huge scope there, um, I think. 
and 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 in a number of other things too. The, none of these things are straightforward. So the flowers has been a big story. It's it's part of a story of conflict as well, but but it, it generates jobs, it generates foreign exchange. These are things that Ethiopia very, very sorely needs. So, so it's about what needs to happen to, to maximize um, the gains whilst, whilst obviously trying to manage some of the, 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 the difficult sides of it. Chris, it's time for more of your super cool Ethio electric jazz, I think. Um, now, I didn't, you've chosen uh, something by Mulatu Astatke, is that, if I pronounced that correctly? And yeah. I thought this was wonderful and superb. I'm so pleased you picked this. It, when, when did you first come across this? Um, I think, I mean, you know, Astatke is probably the single best known Ethiopian jazz um, artist. And again, not, not somebody I, I know enough about and, and have missed opportunities to, to actually go and listen to to live i just i just love listening to this and it, i i love the effect it has on people who um who don't know what it is who've never heard it before and, and they're kind of discombobulated they're not quite sure but they think this is this is really fantastic they've got no idea where it might come from so it's not like sort of west african wonderful music that's a bit more immediately identifiable as this this really beautiful sort of modernist fusion i think that you you, you get in things like this, but a lot of Ethiopian music. So this is Yakamo Su.
So, Chris, you're doing this work on economics with Ethiopia and training officials and so forth. Then one day you got a call with a PhD request, didn't you? T tell us about that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when it was. And I, I think it was during that research project. Um, and uh, the phone rang and this gentleman said um, that he wanted to come do a PhD at, at SOAS and that he was a, a senior policy official in Ethiopia. And I thought, well, hang on a second. I, I, you know, I can't just say, say yes. It's, I've, I've got to find out who this person is and whether they're really going to take academic work seriously. And, and so I, I, um, I got in touch with um, diplomatic people, ambassadors, British council, and in fact was pointed to the Open University as well, because I, I, I don't know if you know, William, but after um, the end of the war in, in 91, when the DER were kicked out, and, and the EPRDF, Roland to town, et cetera, et cetera, uh, a number of the senior leadership under Melez and including Melez, I think, um, enrolled in, in about six months later, I think, in an open university course. I think it was on, on, on management and stuff. And, and, and most of them finished the course. So it was really a, a, an extraordinary sort of commitment to, um, to learning uh, amongst that group. And, and so this person that rang me um, had, had been one of those people. And, and so I was put onto somebody at the Open University. Anyway, all these people, diplomats, British Council people, Open University people said, yeah, this person is really unusual, say yes. So, so, so I did. And, and originally he, he wanted to come and do something on, on urbanization because he had been the mayor of Addis Ababa. So we're talking about Akabe, Akabe. And Akabe um, came and I think at first sort of felt, well, he might be able to combine being a, a, a ministerial status um, advisor to, to the prime minister, to Mellers at the time, with doing a PhD and very quickly worked out uh, that that's not really how it works. That, that, that you, you have to be present. You have to do a lot of research methods, training. You have to do a vast amount of reading and so on. And he, he, he just went for it. He absolutely worked extremely hard and he found that he really had a taste for it, for scholarship and, and debate. And he also shifted um, his, his interests away from just the urban planning side towards doing a project on industrial policy. And um, it's very difficult as, a, as a, somebody who's involved to have that distance to be critical, but um, I think pulled it off and did something on, on cement uh, and, and, and leather and flowers. So saying, well, look, you know, we've got an industrial strategy. How come when it's applied across three different sectors in Ethiopia, the outcomes vary? Shouldn't they be the same across all three? Why does it differ? And um, Akabe was just astonishing. You know, the other PhD students, he didn't tell them who he was. Uh, eventually one or two of them um, sort of worked out that he was a bit unusual, it was fairly obvious. And they were all terrified of the amount of work that he put in, uh, and 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 it was um, yeah it was it was a very very exceptional experience, and, and we became very close. So what did that equip him with, and what did he then go on to do later? So he has been is to this day he 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 has been a senior advisor, special advisor to to three successive prime ministers 
in Ethiopia. So that's uh, Melez Zanawi, uh, Heidi Mariam Desalen, and now to Abby. Um, and so he's he's an advisor. He's done a number of other things. I, I don't know how much of these things are to do with the PhD. He, he, he obviously is a very, very capable individual anyway, um, and, and would have done much of this without the PhD. But I think it's given him uh, a critical edge, a way of asking questions that he didn't have um, necessarily in the same, hadn't honed in quite the same way before. I think it gave him an interest in uh, manufacturing and, and structural change, which he hadn't really had time to kind of devote himself to before and has become really, really important. So one of the things he's done since is he has been the architect of the, in, the new industrial parks in Huwasa or on the outskirts of Addis and in many other towns in Ethiopia. Uh, pulling in huge foreign investment in the textile sector and, and in other sectors. Um, I think before and after the, the PhD, he, he has been the, um, the chair of the Board of Governors of Ethiopian Airlines. Um, and I think what's, what's really interesting is that he has become a, a kind of international public intellectual and, and part and, and, and sort of slightly alarmingly kind of applies a, a policy and an industrial project attitude towards the production of these things and so, so academics are, are not used to working very fast mm. and, and working with Archibald you know you, you, you there's a lot of pressure so the Ethiopian handbook was one thing of those but he's been involved in a number of quite high profile books and as a co-author with um, me and here we go we're going to plug again um, me and a, a close friend of mine uh, John Sendo the, so the three of us wrote this book called African Economic Development Evidence Theory Policy which came out in 2020 which is open access it's free for everybody to download um, so he's done a he's he's done a lot I the one thing I would say about Arkaby right now is that within the last couple of weeks he has been nominated by the African Union as the sole African candidate to uh, take over as head of UNIDO, who, which has elections later this year. So, so that's the next thing. UNIDO is the United Nations Industrial Development Organization. So it's the part of the UN system. So what do you think about Ethiopians on, uh, getting to all these international bodies? It's extraordinary, isn't it? Their kind of hit rate, their strike rate on, on, on well, this is, this is a nomination. Well, it's a nomination. We don't know what will happen. But yes, it is. And in a way, that goes back to what we started talking about earlier in, your, in, in the show, which is this historical legacy of Ethiopians playing a role on the global stage. Mm. So do you find, um, the, the, in academic terms and economic terms, is it a sort of two-way exchange of equals from your experience of SOAS and working with the government? I mean, locally, we've got Bath Spa University, a close partner of Fairfield House. They have a, a, a cultural exchange and partnership with Addis Ababa University. So we have Ethiopian academics visiting. I'm kind of, I'm interested in, in what each learns from the other. Do you, do, you, do you see it as a partnership of equals? A partnership between us and, sorry, go on. Well, between British academics and Ethiopian academics, and then sort of economically as well, the, the sort of trading partnerships. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a, a, a sensitive, delicate issue. I think globally, not just with Ethiopia. Yeah. Um, and I think it's one that Western academics are trying to think about 
um, a little differently. You know, the way we see it at SOAS increasingly is we, we sort of want to be um, a global university. We're, we're not massive. We're not, we're not Oxbridge. We're not, we're, we're not Yale or Harvard, but, but we want to uh, be part of a network of universities, most of which would be in um, developing countries and, and tackling the, 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 the challenges of, of the world at, at the moment. And you can't do that by just taking a, a sort of mining and an extractive mining approach to evidence and research and, and, and saying, well, I'm landing in South Africa or Mozambique or Ethiopia, and I'm just going to do what it takes to, to, to get the material I want and then get out and sort of use people along the way. You have to kind of develop um, more equitable relationships, I think. And I, I, I find that in Ethiopia, compared to many places, um, that, that's easier to do because there is a, there is a, a great intellectual self-confidence amongst Ethiopians. And, and, and so you, you can have this, uh, yeah, fantastic relationship. I mean, I've, in terms of government officials, there are people in Ethiopian government I, I've come across I've, I've, who, their, the quality of their leadership, their, their work ethic is, um, you know, way above many people in, in, in UK government, I have to say. Yeah. I think, you know, they're really astonishing. And the same goes for, for, for intellectuals and so on. I mean, and when you say you're doing a, a, some field work and you're going to a rural area, and if you're somebody like me who hasn't worked all their life on Ethiopia and you don't speak local languages, you, you you partly depend on these things, but you you the insights you gain from uh, younger team leaders, for example, of, of research teams. I, I I have enormous respect for some of the people I've got come to know and befriend through, through that. So yes, you have to develop these these um, these relationships. But I think the the way in which they're institutionalized. There just is an unevenness of resources globally, and 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 it's our responsibility to, um, I suppose, to use our privilege in a in a in a progressive way. Coming out of that, on an administrative note, we've lost Tozin to some crisis, which we don't yet know what it is. So more of that anon. I hope everything's okay. She may be able to rejoin us. This is Imperial Voice. You're listening to In Our City, and we're talking to Professor Chris Kramer about um, economics and politics and Ethiopia. Chris, how familiar are you with the Ethiopian diaspora in the UK? Obviously, a, a, a generation came out after the Derg Revolution. Do you, is, is, is awareness of them and working with them a part of what you do? It's a part of what I do to the extent that when we... So, so I, I'm at SOAS, but I'm also involved in the Royal Africa Society, where I'm a, I'm a vice chair. And... Um, so sometimes through RAS, sometimes through through SOAS and the Center of African Studies there, sometimes jointly, we, we organize public events. Um, and, and we used to do that on site and we still do it remotely. And and when and, and often when we do Ethiopia events, clearly uh, diaspora people come. And that is a, a really great thing. So so I'm I, I'm engaged through that. There is an Ethiopian society, I believe, um, and I, I, I gave a talk for them one time at SOAS. Um, I, 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 it's, it's clearly, I mean, I mean is there are a couple of things to do with the, the diaspora. I, I don't uh, devote enough time 
to working with the diaspora. Teaching takes up so much of my, my time and admin, I guess. But it, it's, it's an incredibly lively diaspora. We all mm. know that. Um, mm. And to, to the point where it, it's sometimes arguably a little bit too lively. I mean, I, 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 for example, don't really get involved that much uh, in social media in debates on Ethiopia because they get so, so sort of high octane and, and, and contested. And I feel, you know, this is not my battleground. It's, uh, it's not for me to kind of intervene and I'm probably put my foot wrong. So I kind of watch that, but, but, yeah. but it's extraordinary. And it's both very, very enriching and also now and again, a little bit alarming, the kind of heat generated like that. At the same time, I think there's something very important about the diaspora is from my own professional point of view is when I work, whether it's with government or whether it's just doing my research independently and talking to um, firms and stuff in Ethiopia, it's really interesting to see how the diaspora has been very, very productively engaged in Ethiopia in, in recent years. Mm. And um, I think sometimes that itself takes a, a quite intense form of pressure for particular reforms and so on for good or ill. But, but it's led to a lot of investments and to people um, coming back to, to sound out the situation in Ethiopia. Do they want to invest there? Do they want to move there either part, temporarily or, or permanently uh, and work there? And, and there are some really interesting people. There's, there's a guy who um, invests in floriculture and horticulture who, who used to work in London I think for Goldman Sachs, really, really smart guy, very, very interesting. There's when the British company, it's actually a southwestern company, it's in Somerset, I think, is um, Pittard's Dove Company. Um, they they have factory in Ethiopia, and they've had a long history of, of working in Ethiopia. It's a fantastic company, and they a few years ago made the very brilliant move of luring back to Ethiopia. Uh, a, dias a woman who'd been living in, in the UK. I think she used to work for ICI, I'm not sure. And she's fantastic and runs their outfit in, in Addis. I think she's still there anyway. She, she was a few years ago, years ago when I interviewed her a couple of times. So, so there's this really interesting revival of, um, of a two-way flow in recent years. Well, we want the diaspora to feel really welcome at Fairfield House because it is their mm. place. And mm. when they take it over, you know, for a festival, the, the, the welcome and the atmosphere and the culture is, is wonderful and a great gift to our community in Bath. We think we've noticed in recent years, I mean, as you say, the relations with the Ethiopian government and with Ethiopia, they're, they're tense and complicated, but we think we've seen a degree of, of sort of rapprochement and a, and, and a degree of willingness. I wonder how you see relations broadly at a national level between Ethiopia and the UK? And do you, do you see a sort of trend or a direction in those? Well, it's, it's a tricky moment um, to be talking about that. I, I think that in recent years, um, I, I think that relationship has, has been quite strong. And, and I, mean, I think for a long time, there's, there's been a, a sort of strong relationship diplomatically and at, at, at ambassador level and so on. There's been some very good uh, ambassadors there and who've been sort of trying to strengthen and forge that link. And I know some of them who, who are no longer, you know, who may have retired from diplomatic service, still really, really committed. 
And I, so I think there is actually a kind of growing interest in the UK in, in um, uh, developing that relationship with Ethiopia. I think people are, are um, astonished by, it. I think in the business community, there's more and more. I remember going to a dinner party probably around 2015, something like that. And there was a, a, a woman I, I know a little bit who, who's, a, um, who's, who's in finance and, and knew virtually nothing about Ethiopia. And so, you know, I, I kind of held court. I, I talked a bit too much probably, but now you wouldn't find that. Everybody, right. everybody in finance, in, in business, so on and so forth, has a, they know more about Ethiopia. They have an interest in it. So I, I think there is scope for a, a, an increasingly close um, and constructive relationship. And it's beautiful because it doesn't have the, the sort of entanglement of those colonial ties yeah. um, that, that yeah. sometimes I, kind of complicate the relationship. I, I, I think that's a unique asset and factor in, in many respects. Um, so you've spoken now about, you know, how uh, the relationship between um, the UK and, and Ethiopia, what do you think your particular relationship will be? How do you see yourself moving forward in your research and your work with, you know, the government? Gosh, I have no, I, I have no idea, really. It's sort of not up to me. I, I, um, I feel, you know, I'm a little bit of a generalist. I do work in sort of South Africa, Mozambique, etc., and Ethiopia. I, I feel a very strong commitment to Ethiopia. I've been incredibly privileged to work um, if this isn't too sort of mawkish, really, to work both with some of the very, very poorest people in the world and to spend time with them and to listen to them in Ethiopia and understand their lives. And at the same time, to work at the very highest levels. I, I had a, a series of, of private sessions and seminars with Haile Mariam when he was prime minister um, and, and in between. And those, that, that, that really is a privilege and it gives you a lasting commitment. I think Ethiopia has this extraordinary, not only history and heritage, but potential. So it is somewhere I hope I will continue to do research if that involves also um, working with government in, on, on things that I think have a positive role to play in the future of the country and, and more importantly, its own people, then, then that's what I'll hope to do. But um, I can never quite predict how things will turn out. So in the relations between Ethiopia and Britain, I mean, obviously capitalism will take its course when people see opportunities to develop and make money. It's wonderful that there's academic experts like yourself and people at Basbai University who can understand the process and sort of shine a light on it. And then diplomats are kind of there to help it along. What, what sort of role do you think this unique history that's embedded in Fairfield House can play? The fact that the Ethiopian emperor lived in um, Britain for five years, that he made warm relations with local people and, and, and left us this gift, this challenging gift, which means that we need to look after the aged, work together to look after the aged. I mean, do, do you feel that has some role in this development? I mean, yes, I'd like to think so. I, I, I don't quite know exactly how, but I really would like to think so. I think people, you know, we, we went through a period of, to be a bit grandiose, of, of, of globalization in a slightly harsh form. Um, I, I, we're not going to lose 
whatever globalization involves, those international connections, those, um, and they it goes back to the beginning of our conversation, they are partly market interactions, but they're not only market interactions. They're, they're, they're interactions of intermarriage, of flows of people, uh, of friendship, uh, of, of consumption, of all sorts of things and, and ideas and interests. So within that, any initiative that, that, that enriches um, our understanding, that doesn't tell just a kind of harsh, uh, self-interested story, that, that, that develops narratives with some sort of meaning around human connection and stuff. These things matter, I think, enormously. And people, you know, I think, I think you have a role to tell, to play in telling stories. And I don't mean making things up. I mean, exploring stories um, and showing those stories. And people need narratives. The way we, it goes back to the fair trade stuff in a way, the way, what fair trade is about is about telling ourselves stories about um, our relationship to the things that we consume, like a cup of coffee um, and, and enriching it with a tale about where it comes from and the conditions under what, which it's produced. You know, there's this huge need for narrative around who we are and how we interact with each other. And um, I, in that light, I would have thought an organization like yours is, 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 is beautifully important. Chris, that's a lovely note to finish on. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It's really nice to talk to you both. Yes, thank you so much. Um, so we've been speaking to Professor Chris Kramer, who has enlightened us about what's going on economically in Ethiopia. It's been an incredible journey you've had with Ethiopia, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, actually. <laughs> a bit bumpy sometimes, but yeah. yeah. I'm not surprised. And listen, I do hope you and colleagues will be able to come down to Bath. And, uh... No, it'd be lovely, and I'll let you know if I do, and it'd be, it'd be really good fun. You've been listening to In Our City, the political um, economist, Professor Chris Kramer, who has a deep love and respect for Ethiopia. I'm Tosi Onuleri. I'm William Heath. Now we stay tuned to Imperial Voice. Chris, thank you so much. Great. That's a pleasure. Thank you both.